Is depression funny? I was ready for this. I wasn't. I should have been. I know. It's a, it, it starts know every, it starts every podcast. I know. Depression is not particularly funny when you're going through it. But if you get just a little bit past it and you look back and the idea that you're – you get to that headspace when you're really in the thick of it where you think you're the most worthless thing in the world and yet everybody's thinking about you. <laughs> and there is something inherently funny about that. You know what? It's it's not that funny. It's it's not funny. It wasn't funny when, you know, the depression version of women is ice cream and Bridget Jones and crying and Spanx. And it's not funny now. Okay. Fuck, I want to say it mine again. No, I want to no, do mine no, again. No, I think you're, it's a no, valid point. But I, I do think it's funny. I just, you know what? Depression can be funny. <laughs> <laughs> she's that was really, sincere. She's really come around. No, but honestly, but when it, I was. Depression can be funny. And you know what? I don't know that I make it funny, but I love listening to people talk about it. And when, they, when they're brilliantly funny about it, whether it's Patton Oswalt or Paul F. Tompkins, I like hearing other really funny people talk about depression, but I don't think I can make it that funny. Rachel Bloom handles depression with a great deal oh, of humor. Oh, I changed my mind. Depression is funny. Watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That's super funny. Chris Gethard, you're the worst handled depression really well, I yeah, thought. Yeah, but I didn't think it was funny on your No, worst. that's a good point. They were really raw about it. Oh, fuck. Maybe it's not funny. Doc says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. I've been hosting this show for a while now, long enough to notice things that come up in lots of different interviews, like improv, for instance, improvisational theater or comedy as a device to figure out who you are and what you're dealing with. In improv, you need to be in the moment, not worrying about a script or worrying about the future or the past. You have to connect with other people. You have to listen and be generous with other human beings who are with you, who are listening and who are being generous to you. Plus also, it's fun. In short, it's kind of the opposite of depression. I was talking about this via email with a friend of mine who is an actor and has done a lot of improv and taught improv and has dealt with depression. And he reminded me that his wife has done all those things, too, and that they met in an improv class. So we asked them to be on a show together, which was fun. Hi, I am Jamie Denbo. Hi, I'm John Ross Bowie. <laughs> Wait, what did you want us to do? Where we are right now. Oh, hi, I'm Jamie Denbo, and I am in Los Angeles. I'm John Ross Bowie. I'm in Los Angeles, where I live with Jamie Denbo, who is my wife and my baby mama. Correct. John Ross Bowie was born and raised in New York City. He's an actor known for his leading role on the ABC sitcom Speechless and for a recurring role as Kripke on the CBS sitcom The Big Bang Theory. This is a pickle. <laughs> yes, so if you will just move your birthday party to a different location, everything will be fine. Uh, it, it, it's Twicky. I don't want to move my potty, but I also don't want to help you. Oh, wait, I don't have a problem. 
Jamie Denbo is from suburban Boston. She's appeared on shows like Orange is the New Black and The Good Place, movies like The Heat and Spy and the Ghostbusters remake. She's half of the comedy duo Rana and Beverly. Here she is on Parks and Recreation with Amy Poehler. It's nice to be here among all of these excellent journalists and also the people that work with me over at the Pawnee Sun. Damn it, that was my opener. Now I love working at the Sun, okay? I know you all think it's just a useless tabloid, but it's not. It is great for housebreaking puppies. Oh my God, those are my jokes. She's stealing my jokes. Some people say- Jamie and John have two kids. They live in LA. They've been married since 2004, but they met years before that in an improv class in New York. We were friends. We met in Amy Poehler's level two at UCB. UCB is Upright Citizens Brigade, the influential improv theater and school. Amy Poehler, referenced there, is Amy Poehler. Jamie and John met before Amy Poehler was a household name, when that theater was really small. The improv style of UCB isn't like improv on the TV show Whose Line Is It Anyway, with short scenes and games and quick laughs. UCB favors long-form improv, long scenes, half-hour, minimal audience suggestion. There's a lot of depth, a lot of deep character work. People with depression gravitating to improv makes a lot of sense to Jamie and John. It's a group. It's a group, and I think a lot of people are looking for a collaborative... I mean, I hate to be so simplistic, but, I mean, if your family is at all broken, you're looking for a new family. And if you're, you know, dark-humored and improv is sort of that perfect fit, you get put together in new families, and it's incredibly... It can be incredibly soothing. I think there are people who are drawn to improv because they want community and they want an art form that puts you very much in the moment. I also think there is a part in the depressive mind that can make these crazy, almost illogical jumps from thing to thing. You know, like if I am, you know, if if this is going wrong right now, what's to stop everything else from going wrong in a couple of days? And won't it be even worse in a week's time? And all that kind of that it's sort creative. of creative. Well, yeah, but it's all that kind of compulsive thinking that leads you down these weird paths can actually serve improv, specifically comedy in general. And so I think it's yes, there are people who come to improv for soulless. I think there's um, uh, people who come to improv because their mind's all over the place anyway, and they can constantly, like, dredge up these weird specifics and remember all this dumb stuff. It, and, internally, it, re- it rewards weird thinking, yeah. I think, is and, this, and the crazier, uh, crazier reference or the crazier mind leap. I agree with you. But I also think on a very practical level, it's, it's places where there's groups of people. John enrolled at UCB in the late 90s, kind of in desperation to get out of the life he was living, which had nothing to do with improv or comedy or show business. I was a real mess when I started improv the previous spring. I was going through my first capital D depressive episode. It was really gnarly. I'd always been anxious. I'd always had problems with Anxiety attacks. I'd had all these dizzy spells when I was a little kid that sent me to, you know, an eye, ear, nose, throat guy. It sent me to a a neurologist briefly, and they just concluded that it was stress. Um, And I'd always had trouble dealing with that. And 
somewhere around spring of 98, my, my, my band had broken up and I was in a relationship with my high school sweetheart that was going south really fast and it just felt like everything was collapsing and I would start to get these very long-term panic attacks that would last for days, like days on end of feeling like I had leaned too far back in my chair. Wow. And it was, I couldn't eat and I was losing weight and it was really one of those things. And I also had, and this is important to note, no creative outlet. I was working a corporate job at the time at which I was, I was doing fine at the job, but I was not thriving and I wasn't really enjoying it. And I. Were you doing comedy or theater at that point? Nothing. No. No, I was. I wasn't a theater major. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't. I, I harbored a deep, dark, secret wish to become an actor, but wasn't able to articulate it. I think it was one of those things where life was going so poorly that I might as well try improv. Uh-huh. You know, I, I, I um, when all else fails, you know, there was a sense of um, I just saw a movie recently that took place in a there's a scene in an AA meeting where a sponsor says to a new a newcomer. So what's going so well in your life that you ended up here? <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, that's that's me and improv pretty much. <laughs> and again, not vouching for anybody else. People come to it why they come to it. But I was at the end of my rope. I was in a really bad place. And I was I just started Zoloft, I want to say. I, I, yeah, when I started taking classes and it was, it was just dire, but it got me through my eight improv classes without any major panic attacks. And yeah. uh, that was, that was nice. I, it's, it's very, uh, the whole thing was, uh, was weird, but it really got to a point of, of, and it was, it was long time coming. It was, if it hadn't been the band breaking up or the relationship going south, it would have been something else. Jamie saw no struggle in John. She just liked him. It's, we didn't have, I mean, this is the late nineties. It's like the language of depression wasn't as prevalent. (laughs) So to me, it looked like I don't know. You were dry and funny and dark, but confident in a way. Like, mm. that's just the shell of, like, maybe it was just defensiveness or anger, whatever, but it fueled a certain specific comedy in you that really stood out. I will say that by the time you met me, Jamie, I was I was coming out of the dark a little bit. Yeah. And I was, you know, drugs were working, mm-hmm. and I had broken up with that girl and I was living with my mom, which was not which is one of the reasons I didn't immediately swing Hot. for the fences Hot. when I was when I met you. Um, <laughs> That's your hung back right a little there, bit, right? Hung back a little bit, wasn't it my Keep best? Talking, baby. <laughs> and I um so yeah, it was a uh, I was in a a transitional period, but on the definitely on a little bit of an incline at that point okay. um, compared to where I'd been about three or four months prior. So for John, improv was a sharp turn into a new world, and a change happened in his mental health right around that same time. For Jamie, on the other hand, improv was an ongoing thing, as was depression. I was like a, almost like a, a closeted depressive my whole life. It's like I knew that there was something very wrong, but I had no language or tools. And so I, the only word that kind of comes to mind overwhelmingly is I was very lonely. Hmm. had a lonely childhood. I was an only child in a town where everybody had three siblings, and my parents were weird transplants, and they were rocky, and it was complicated. And um, I continued that loneliness for a very long time. I discovered college improv at Boston University. It was the only thing I liked, but it didn't – 
I had my parents' voice in my head that there was no career in performing or anything in the arts, but I realized that improv was really all I wanted to do. Loneliness and an urge to perform made the college improv troupe a natural fit. It was a club and it was a team, and I didn't feel like I ever had access to clubs or teams because I wasn't athletic or interested in athletics. I always liked drama clubs and plays, but they, they end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, you do your performance and it's over, and you suffer a little bit of a loss every time that happens. And, you know, that's a lot of what a, an artistic career ultimately winds up being when you're in the arts in Los Angeles like we are. I mean, you do television shows or episodes or, or things or movies and, you know, the family disbands again. But improv at the time was consistent um, and I enjoyed it and I loved it and I loved the immediacy. And I also just I frankly loved and still love the art form. You know, Mm. um, it's great for lazy people because there's no memorization. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm not going to lie. That was very appealing. Yeah, you're instantly off book. Yeah, you learn techniques, but you don't have to. It's not as maybe labor intensive. There are a lot of places for an actor, an improviser, a performer to perform. Jamie found that not all of those places are in New York or L.A. I took a left turn after college with a communications major and no real plan, except that I knew I had to get a job, job somehow. And I auditioned for summer stock theaters in New England. I thought I was auditioning for Shakespeare in the Park. I was auditioning for a Renaissance Festival. Um, It was the job that I got. I went six hours north to Lake Ontario. I wound up working in a Renaissance Festival. And what I learned, among a zillion other things, was that the Renaissance Festival is a circuit that exists. Mm -hmm. But I learned that improv, interactive entertainment was a whole layer of job that I was equipped for, that I liked, that was super weird, hard to explain to my parents, and was something I could do either on the Renaissance Festival circuit in small places or at corporations like Disney. Got hired at Disney, wound up doing the Comedy Warehouse, four or five improv shows a night. Uh, clean improv, five nights too, of clean which improv. kind of dazzles Disney. me. Yeah. 300-seat house. If you have a terrible show, it doesn't matter because in 20 minutes you're getting back up there again and doing more, you know, fake Jeopardy for the audience. Um, and I realized at the age of 24 that I was 24 and living in Orlando And I loved the people I was working with, but this was not the life that I wanted. And so I went to New York City, and I was like, this is it. This is where I want to be. She knew one person in New York who told her, go check out this place called UCB. And I went and I saw them. Wound up taking classes, but I was um, free-falling in terms of my mental health. (laughs) Yeah, well, I was going to ask, because I know you're a a proponent of of improv, of course, and a practitioner of it. In those Renaissance Fair improvs and in those Disney improvs, was it cathartic? Was it therapeutic in some way? Or was it just making things worse with your mental health? Well, what's interesting about those atmospheres is they were, particularly in the Renaissance Festival community, is they're very kind Mm-hmm. It's actually a very kind community, very warm community, very accepting community. They take a lot of a lot of misfits in those communities and they give them big hugs. But if you're feeling like you don't deserve it or you are unsure that it's the stability that you are it's a stability you're not aware sure of, you're not confident in. You grow up in a very traditional household and then the Renaissance fair is like, we'll give you hugs and treats and smoke weed. And, <laughs> and you're just like, this doesn't feel right either. So I almost felt like my whole, everything was out of balance. I knew I needed to get to New York. I loved the UCB. I wanted to get involved, but I could feel a mounting 
pressure. I mean, it wasn't until I think after John and I had been together for a few years that I had a massive nervous breakdown. Really? Um, what did, yeah. And uh, Oof, I know it's a lot of information. Um, <laughs> well, we met up and we were friends for a really long time. And I think we both I found comfort in the fact that I thought this guy is a sensitive soul. We'll get to that breakdown in a bit. So at this point, it's the late 90s, and these creative people with histories of depression and at least some uncertainty of how to deal with it are at UCB together. It's funny. I have a very specific memory of Jamie on stage in a scene um, at UCB. And I don't remember who she was playing with, but she was playing with somebody who was a little, a little green, and what green guys do sometimes when they're on stage with a woman is just start getting really abusive. Oh, no. And it's, you know, it's quote-unquote jokes, you know, and, oh. and it's just like, huh, I'm doing a parody of misogyny or whatever. And it gets pretty, it can get pretty ugly, and it happens more often than it should. And Jamie turned towards the audience. I bet you don't remember this. I don't. I'm fascinated. Turned towards the audience and started punching her arm and then punching the other arm and then her and like just gradually literally beating herself up and i had just been told by my psychiatrist wow john you really like to beat yourself up <laughs> here's this woman literally doing it on stage like full on tyler durdening herself on stage and i was watching it and i was like oh i bet she'd get me <laughs> <laughs> Honey, they're playing our song. It was kind of like that, you know, and it, it, this would be a, that doesn't sound like the, the greatest way to start a relationship, but <laughs> our kids are in school right now. Yeah, everybody's you know, functioning. Yeah. We're doing okay. I think I took my loneliness with me. I took my loneliness out of Massachusetts to the Renaissance Festival, to Orlando, to New York, and was still chasing it and chasing it and chasing it and not really coming to terms with it. Did you both find that uh, doing improv in this positive space, was that a turnaround for your mental health? Was this when like, oh, now things are getting back on track, that I'm in a happy place doing things I love with people I dig? It definitely helped me because, I mean, it was a dramatic turnaround for me. I, I had gone from, I, I quit my my corporate job and within a year it started booking commercials and it was a big, big seismic like life shift for me. And it wasn't just, you know, all this external validation. There was something coming from within in terms of, like, oh, this is something I can be good at. This is something where I can contribute. This is something where I'm part of a group of like-minded people and we are all connecting and we're all sort of you know, the the rising tide is lifting all boats. And that was the thing. We both, Jamie and I, this is late 90s, both were among the first people to start getting actual work yeah, that's, at a UCB. That's, that, was, that was encouraging. I mean, certainly on a very surface level for me. I mean, I— you booked us. I remember you booked a Sex in the City, and everybody was like, "How does that even <laughs> happen? You're on television. <laughs> yeah. How does that work?" A while back, we had comedian Chris Gethard on the show. He had also studied at UCB. In fact, he lists John Ross Bowie as one of his heroes. Chris mentioned the kinds of characters he started to play when he noticed his depression really flaring up. I started as an improviser at UCB, and I started playing a lot of depressed characters. 
started playing a lot of characters who were recently medicated. I started playing a lot of characters who could only see the grim side of the world. And I remember almost having like a, in my head of like, tee hee 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 hee, like <laughs> they don't realize how real this is. I thought about that bit from Chris Gethard when I was talking to John Ross Bowie and Jamie Denbo because improv never changed who these people were, but it did bring up the issues that they were dealing with. For John, improv was a new home and a better life. For Jamie, performing was a way of fending off her actual problems, even when she got the part on Sex and the City. Things like that would keep my me from having to deal with what was creeping up, which was a massive, massive fall down in about 2002. Mm. Um, so you were so yeah. busy with this yeah. kind of I was almost, I want, I shudder to say manic. I feel like I was a little manic. I might have been a little manic. Well, and this is what I wonder too, this is kind of at the root of it, is that so often I hear from people, and, and I did this myself after some trauma of like, I'm going to be so busy that it'll never catch me. You know, <laughs> my, my mind will never catch up with me. The monster will never track me down. If it's, I keep running. it's still the biggest relief in the world to have a, a, a busy day. Time on Montans. It's like you, if you're a depressive, you have to really work to remind yourself that it is fine if you do nothing because yeah. it is the first thing to kill you. Well, so this is so interesting, though, because for, for John, it was it seemed to be this, ah, now I can kind of relax into into who I am. And then, Jamie, you're saying that it, it kept you so busy that it kept you away from really dealing with things. I think because I had the benefit of an extra couple of years of performing for money and mm -hmm. realizing that it was something that could be done, whereas John has sort of just got that revelation. Yeah. So he was coasting on that a little bit. Definitely. Whereas I had, you know, made money improvising, which was bizarre because, I mean, again, it wasn't famous improvising. It wasn't on TV. It was interactive stuff. But you stuff. were a working actor. Correct. There's like 25 paying improv jobs in the United States, <laughs> give or take. Well, you had a couple I mean, of them. I think there's more than, than you think. I think there's always more than you think. And I think it's a very interesting career path that I, I think people need to remember that if you're doing it because you love it and not for chasing fame or really giant uh, paydays, you know, there are places to do that art form and actually make a living. And they're very satisfying. They can be very satisfying. So I think I had a taste of... The career part. So for me, I was sort of, again, just barreling forward. I mean, I I did a one-woman show at UCB. It might have been the first one-person show that, that they ever did at the, at the theater. I mean, I don't want to – it might have been, been one of them. And, yeah. and um, I, I took it to Aspen in 2001, and I, I just ha I had such, like, career ambition and agita that I couldn't – it wasn't until we slowed down. John and I – finally hooked up and that was great because it was like and we're done great right <laughs> Yo, there was I mean I don't want to lose the romance but I also want to skip ahead to the depressing part no certainly there, but there was a real sense of like this is somebody I'm going to spend the rest of my life with really it took us a while to get married just because we don't trust anything but it was because uh, was... other people can hurt you of course yeah given so in our story Jamie and John connect they pledge undying devotion and all their problems are solved well Almost none of their problems are solved because there's a collapse coming up after the break. The collapses usually come after the break on this show. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Okay 
Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a good way to deal with depression, a way of maybe demystifying depression a little bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. Depression is a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. A conversation like that, yeah, it can get a little awkward, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, what never to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Just remember, use those promo codes when we talk about our sponsors. You know, you'll hear me say, use promo code hilarious, use promo code world, that kind of thing. And when you use those, you get bargains galore. And also those sponsors know that our listeners are really loyal and that they're out there. And then those sponsors, you see, want to keep sponsoring the show, which helps the show and everybody wins. Back with Jamie Denbo and John Ross Bowie, married couple in real life, and also married couple on Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David, where their characters adopted a baby from China. Is that Larry? Larry! It's you! Uh, oh, hey. hey! We were just talking about you. Just now. Are you still going to make it to the Shiyong recital at our house? Are you kidding? Of course oh, okay. I'm coming. I'm good. a huge fan of hers. My God. Have you guys met? Have you You've met Kelsey? have never met Kelsey before. Hello, Kelsey! Yes, this is Kelsey! Oh, my Kelsey. Kelsey. Yeah, just got her yeah. six months ago. Larry, Kelsey, six Kelsey, months? Larry. Oh, hello, yes, Kelsey. yes, yes. <laughs> Kelsey, Kelsey Grammer. Oh, she's I, well, that's Frazier. Just, just Kelsey. Hello, Frazier. Don't call her Frazier. Uh, okay, that's that's kind of weird. Oh, yeah. no? Let me ask you this question. Yeah. Have you noticed if she has any proclivity for a chopsticks? Why would, she, why, why would she have a proclivity for chopsticks? Right? Well, she's Chinese. Do you think she is also a kung fu master? We're talking about depression, naturally, because it's this program, and also improv. So many comedian and actor guests we've had on this program have talked about improv as being a clarifying experience, helpful in figuring out who they are. Some creative people also see it as a hideout, a way of running away from who you are and running away from issues like depression. I kind of really related to John and Jamie. In terms of performance, improv is sort of somewhere between <laughs> reality and theater in the in the more classical sense. And I feel like in, in my situation, I was an actor for a long time, did very little improv, did a lot of scripted plays. And it really wasn't until I walked away from doing that as often as I could, as much as I could, that I started to kind of figure out my mental health because it was plays were a great way um, yes. to just like, oh, I know what I'm going to say in this moment while interacting with this other person. I have somewhere to go that takes up hours and hours and hours every single day. And then at the end of this thing that I do, strangers give me the approval I can never generate for myself. This is a perfect <laughs> scenario. Um, right. And it wasn't until I kind of stopped doing, doing those sorts of things I, that I was like, okay, I got to figure out who I yeah. really am here. Um, yep. I wonder if you've you experienced that in doing scripted work, or if uh, if that is lessened somewhat by uh, having to be more present in a situation like improv. I think that's a really interesting point. I feel like the work 
it's easier to do scripted work when you're having a rough time mentally. I was working through a rather nasty episode just about a month and a half ago and uh, was working on on Speechless and was able to get it done because I had script in hand. I knew what was expected of me. Uh, I've been doing playing the character for two and a half years now, and I've, I've gotten a certain amount of a groove going. And I would do the scene. I would go back to my trailer. I would go fetal, and then they would call me, and I would come back and do some more. And it was <laughs> I was able to compartmentalize because, again, I knew exactly what was expected of me. Could I have been doing long-form improv shows at that time? Probably not. I mean, I keep referring to this episode. I think it's just worth talking about as long as we're here. Well, um, sure. You've picked the right <laughs> podcast. That's what I figured. <laughs> it won't so, work on the daily from the New York Times. That's no, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I keep calling in. <laughs> so in 2002, John and I moved uh, to L.A., and I think something that happened was sort of just that. You know, I left the regularity of performing at the theater because there was no UCB theater in 2002 in Los Angeles, did not have a job, uh, did not know what to do. And actually, I was, you know, I think a lot of people, I don't know how often you hear the expression, you're Saturn returning, Mm -hmm. but ages 29 to 31 or something like that, Saturn is in the same position it was when you were born. And theoretically, this has to do with some sort of reevaluation of your life. So... 29, I think, I don't have an improv theater out here. Um, Well, I'm going to be a stand-up. So (laughs) I started doing stand-up. I was fine. Um, Mostly terrible. Mm -hmm. Occasionally okay. Um, And She was was honestly better than she's letting uh, letting out. Okay, that's very (laughs) sweet, honey. Um, He has to say that. No, I don't. I could sit here quietly and I could... Oh, oh, I do? Yeah, you really do. Um, I am... I... I was sort of left without my love. You know, I didn't have my improv, but I thought, okay, I'll substitute this. So I got a decent 10 minutes together. I wound up in the year we moved out from Los Angeles doing an incredible 10-minute set (laughs) on the night that the Montreal Comedy Festival Just for Laughs people, new faces were auditioning people for their new faces. Now, at the time, Montreal new faces was the biggest deal in the world. That's how you got a sitcom job. That's how you got a sit whatever. I got into the festival, and I went. And I, first of all, I was up there with such seasoned professionals: Al Madrigal, Tammy Pescatelli, like a lot of touring. Al Madrigal was on that. Yes, oh touring God. comics, people who this was their life. And I have more respect for stand-up comedians than anyone else in the performance industry because they are the hardest working human beings on the planet. If you are a stand-up, that means you perform six nights a week minimum and you will perform for two people in a laundromat or you will perform for a thousand people at the Staples Center. It doesn't matter. You will make yourself a working comic. A thousand people at the Staples Center. That's really terrible. I didn't the Staples Center. Yeah, that's, that's lousy. That's, so just the custodian <laughs> showed up. Whatever. It's like, you know, the big... Cl- okay. Clippers, Hawks, so, I think. Yeah. Okay, wherever they do the sports stuff. So... Um, anyway, and and I um I get up uh, and Kevin Pollack is hosting the night, yeah. and I get up to do my ten minutes, and I think by the way this is gonna this is it. Then I'll have a career. Okay, I won't have to worry about the move or the fact that there's no UCB in LA. I'm gonna I'm gonna be set. I'll be a stand up comic. We also did hardly knew anybody we in didn't LA. Know anybody that, yeah, I mean I was really this was also could be con- could conceived of as a, it could be interpreted as manic. But mm. I got up, I do my my ten minutes. 
One of my bits was was me comparing my life to Nikki Six from Motley Cruz and I crew and I had his biography and I would read like oh you know Nikki like we're the same person you know like he uh, passed out from like you know fucking a girl uh, in her ass while doing heroin off her back and I had a bat mitzvah like that was the joke right so but. I, it and was, I saw that bit repeatedly kill in much. New York, thank in you very L.A. Much. rather. Thank you very much. It bombed so badly <laughs> and that I all I can remember is being on stage and feeling my my chin getting, like, closer to my neck and the sweat. <laughs> and I could see a single line—people could smoke in the clubs. I could see a single line of smoke coming up from a table between me and the spotlight. Oh. And it was just dead, dead. I got off the stage, and I burst out crying— and Kevin Pollack came over to me and he was like, hey, hey, fuck them. Fuck that audience. But lose the book. <laughs> and I'm, I was like, well, I don't have an hour of material to lose the book from. Like, I don't I can't put something else in this place. So I did my you know, we had to go up again and do another set. I don't remember that at all. I know that it was fine. It was basically six minutes, mm -hmm. and I left the festival early, and that's when I came home and completely fell apart. And that incident, when comedy no longer provided her joy, comfort, protection, that was the breaking point. And I went home to my parents. John was living on, in L.A. Um, we were living together, but I went home, and I was like, I am falling apart. My soul's not right. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I came home. My parents took me to McLean, which is the girl interrupted mental hospital. Uh -huh. And I remember being in the waiting room with my mom and she was completely incapable of communicating. The only thing that was positive about all of this was I think my parents finally understood that there was something clinically wrong. Because up until that point in my life, it was like, oh, Jamie with her dramatics. So I think... There was a little connection there and kindness. I spent one night in McLean. They gave me a clonopin. And all I can remember is I took the clonopin and it felt like I closed my eyes and they opened again and it was morning. And it was I, I was so deprived of sleep at that point. Yeah. And I went home for another couple of weeks. Um, I had a painting phase because that's I was still in my 20s or just barely still in my 20s. And then um, finally sort of pick myself back up. But I don't know. I don't know if stopping improv would <laughs> triggered all of that, but certainly slowing down. Did you get treatment at, coming out of that? I mean, yes. did you did you get a yes. more uh, aggressive approach to this yes. thing that had been lingering? Yes. Yes, I did. I finally found the right therapist. I have been blessed and the right medication. And I have been blessed to be with this therapist for the past whatever it is, 16, 17 years. Wow. And which, in, well, and here's what I think is important, and I, I would love to say this because I think it's such a great thing to for people to understand. I, it's something I learned that I, I love, it really helped me, was I remember being in my therapy at this time, shortly after, twice a week, crying on her couch saying, is this it? Like, this is it now. I come here twice a week for the rest of my life, and I'm going to be uh, just a, a puddle and a mess and incapable of living my life without a fucking coach or whatever it is that your role is here. And she looked at me and she said, no. She said, hopefully sooner, but in a year or two, you'll go for months without talking to me or seeing me. And then maybe a couple another years will go by and you'll call me for a tune-up. 
and maybe you'll come in or maybe we'll talk on the phone and then maybe you'll be going through something. If you need to see me more often, you will. And it was the first time I realized that therapy wasn't what Woody Allen portrayed it as, <laughs> a, a lifetime commitment of once a week on a couch. And yeah. you, I always felt that there were the therapists or the analysts in my life, I, I, I was never sure that they weren't trying to rip me off, which sounds awful, but there was a part of me that's like, are they trying to keep me here so that I can just be here? She really released me from that. And the truth is, is to this day, I will see her maybe once a year if I need to, sometimes more. You probably thought that because you weren't ready to trust very many people at that point. That's right. Who you didn't know well. John, what was that like for you when you were, when Jamie was going through that? Because now I suddenly feel like a marriage therapist just by phrasing it like this. Um, it's cool. It's cool. What, We've done that too. <laughs> yeah. What was it like for you as somebody who had already had major depressive episodes or, or a breakdown or however you choose to characterize it? Like, did you get it? Did you try to help? What was it? I wouldn't characterize it as a, a cakewalk, but <laughs> I do think there was... It was one of those rare occasions where the, the you know, 26 months or so that separate us helped, I think, because I had been, when I had been he Jamie's age. He means he's much older than me. I'm 26 months older than she is. Yeah, but he looks way older. Um, <laughs> the I think there was something that, that at least made me realize, okay, I have been there. I have gotten through this. I know there is a way out. Now, it's very, very hard from the outside to help someone, but I, you know, I was just trying to make sure she was sleeping, trying to make sure she was eating. Um, it was not, it was not easy on him. It was not easy on me. I think we were lucky in a way that we didn't know that many people out in Los Angeles because I mean, you had, you didn't have too many places to run, but oh, no, I would, I wouldn't have also. Um, but I, it was, it was really hard watching someone I deeply, deeply cared about go through this, but there was also something I can't say soothing, but there was something reassuring somewhat that like, okay, I have also been here. I know what this feels like. I know what it feels like where, you know, where you feel like everyone hates you and the people who don't hate you are idiots for not hating you. And I know what it feels like to um, uh, feel like you don't deserve food. And I know what it feels like to uh, find no joy in anything, even your go-to things, you know, like this particular song, Groundhog Day, the movie, all these things that you can usually go to that will put you in a good mood. And when they're not working anymore and how usurping that is, I, um, I had been there before and I had been with someone who didn't understand what that's like. So Jamie and I have since nothing quite as bad as what Jamie went through, but but we have since been through some times sure. individually, never at the same time, knock wood. Oh, thank goodness. But, we, um, we once had the flu at the same time. That was rough. That was rough. <laughs> we had to get a sitter. Um, <laughs> Not good. That was a mess, yeah. Um, although it was right before pilot season, though, and I needed to lose some pounds. So Ugh. the... Um, <laughs> God, I'm sorry, audience. <laughs> he is such a diva. The... Um, but it, I honestly, you know what it did? It was that moment of like, okay, this is the woman who beat herself up on stage. We had to know this was going to be an option. We are here for this together. She understands. I understand. And it it was sort of a make or break moment for the relationship. I can't and, believe and you. And now when I look it. back, we haven't talked about this in so long. He really, you, you really held on. I, that's incredible. I married the right guy. Oh, I, you, were, you were worth it.
John and Jamie's time after her breakdown could have been drawn up by a therapist. Jamie struggles, John's ready to support her with the wisdom of his own experiences. And while they concentrate on getting Jamie better, they both try to keep busy in a healthy, mindful way. And best of all, in the very shaky world of show business, John starts to succeed and bring in money. I got to L.A. and started working pretty quickly. I lucked out and I got right place, right time for something. And one of the things was that I at least was, yeah, because it kept me (laughs) busy. Yep. It kept me flush for whatever we needed to do in terms of therapy and stuff like that. flights home. Yeah. Or flights home. And it was... It was. It also made the transition to L.A. easier for me because I was forced into, you know, I was like I wasn't necessarily making deep friends, though I made a couple. Mm-hmm. But I was immediately like I had a place to go and I had places to things to do and and money coming in and I paid off my student loan and and I learned to drive that year. And there was a bunch of things I, at 30 because I grew up in New York. So there was a bunch of things I had going for me that gave me the reserve tanks, I think, to deal with what Jamie was going through and to help her. I often marvel how people predisposed to depression last even a week in Hollywood. I mean, auditioning is built on making yourself available and vulnerable to people who almost always reject you. Jamie says she survived through traditional therapies and also by carving out her own thing. For me, I can say, again, I had an incredible therapist, the right medication, and I... Um, you know, I, I was, after a couple of years, the UCB theater grew in Los Angeles and we suddenly had another place to land a little bit. I found an act that meant a tremendous amount to me called Rana and Beverly, which started to fulfill me in artistic ways that maybe weren't necessarily well paying or immediate. I was back in front of an audience. So I was still getting that, you know, lever pulling of validation. Jamie co-created and co-stars in Rana and Beverly with actress Jessica Chaffin. They do regular stage shows in L.A. They have a podcast. Rana and Beverly, the characters, are 50-somethings from Boston who give advice that no one particularly asked for. This is from their podcast. But what happened was is I drank an entire bottle of grapefruit-flavored dishwashing soap, hand-washed soap. So it's very you have to be very careful with food-flavored soap. Frank, you take that, too. And okay. then here, oh, look at that. Now, that is Disinfected, spray to go. And I they show actually, you a toilet. You can do that right in a toilet, a I public toilet. I actually came up with the idea a for A public that. toilet. I'm telling you, Beverly, don't oh. you remember 20 John has some ago. coping strategies of his own, including science. This might seem a little... Um, pretentious? Oh, everything I say sounds pretentious, but... Um, you said it. Um, the uh, Just hand me my clove cigarettes. The Ugh. What I do research, I go into uh, what is actually happening, happening in my brain mm. when it's acting up. And when I was having a rough time a couple months ago, a month and a half ago, I started doing all this reading about cortisol and which is, you know, the fear hormone that leaks out of your, uh, what is it, your amygdala, I think? Brain. Um, but it, no, it really, when you treat it like the chemical imbalance it is and you address it as such, I find that incredibly soothing because otherwise it's just the demons coming to get you. Yeah. And if you can scientify it a little bit, 
Yeah, you heard me. Scientify it a little bit. <laughs> Good word, babe. Thanks. Big the, Bang Theory it, veteran, John Ross. <laughs> <laughs> bang Bang Science Kids. Um, the it, it gives you a real it, it kind of restores a sense of of rationality at a time when you're feeling so irrational. Well, it turns it into a, a chemical problem and not the universe is out to kill me. Precisely. Kind of thing. And, and that's like the, the biggest thing is trying to get past that hump of the universe is trying to kill you and the people who love you are idiots and you're taking up space and no one will genuinely miss you were you to disappear. And if you can get to a point where you're really looking at what serotonin does and why some brains burn it off quickly and others don't, I don't know, I find that really soothing. So in the end, here you have John, who turned to improv after what he calls a major depressive episode, found a new career, found love, found his true self. He used improv and science as tools to figure himself out as part of an ongoing positive direction. And then you have Jamie, who drove herself hard through performance, and then the wheels came off in what she calls a nervous breakdown. Then she rediscovered improv and used it to find a path that fulfilled and grounded her. And they're happily married. They have two kids, and they're cute together. Yay. But we can't all go out and sign up for our own sitcom on ABC or multiple movies with Melissa McCarthy. So what should normal people keep in mind if they sign up for an improv class? Improv makes you a better listener. It is a technique that teaches you to observe, to wait, to be patient, to take your moment. I, I think it's a life skill. Um, it was, it's been incredibly helpful to me in every aspect of my life just because it's a life skill. It teaches you to listen. Makes you a better parent. It makes you a better parent. You listen, you're listening, you're observing, you're, you're just becoming more aware of the stuff around you. You're adjusting on the fly. By virtue of being in the moment. And, and I think if people enjoy the experience of improv, you've gotten something out of it because you've learned that spontaneity and, and being in the moment and listening are, are truly skills that you can use. We both used to teach level one at UCB, and I used to love teaching level one. I love teaching level, level one. one because you get those people. You get people who are not there to be big stars. They don't see it as a stepping stone. They see it as like, I want to loosen up a little. Yeah. you get you, What you get is you get teachers on summer break. You get- Law um, students, biochemists. You get divorced, uh, freshly divorced women who want to shake things up a little bit. How dare you? You get No, it's great. I um, mm-hmm. You don't see a lot of divor- freshly divorced guys. You see a lot of freshly divorced <laughs> you women. You don't. Uh, nice work. They're all at the, IKEA. Yeah, the, oh, that's wow. wow. That's dark. <laughs> that is the darkest thing you've said um, in your life. The um, but you you get these, and it's great because they're in there with the people who do have their eyes on the prize. You, they're in there with people who were you know who are taking an improv class at the behest of their agent. Um, you know, so and they all kind of feed each other because you've got people with real world experience and people who are fresh out of an MFA program or whatever, and they're all kind of bumping up against each other and learning from each other, and. I'm always kind of drawn to the people who, you know, conned their law firm into pl- paying for this class <laughs> or, you know, people who are, you know, maybe have some sort of weird severance package that they're going to spend on improv rather than the people who are just like, I am going to be on SNL. You get a real X-Men squad well, of people and with also, different skills. The people who have different skills have the most to offer because they're going to do the most authentic and real and interesting scene about being in a lab. 
yeah. or being at the bar. You know, I mean, the bar, meaning the bar test, not the bar. A bar, bar, plenty of comedian and bar aspirational exam. actors yeah. know very well how to drink. But it's, um, I just think it's a life skill. And I think it's kind of good for, I mean, not to do a big ad for improv, but I think it's a wonderful thing for people to dip their toes in. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media pace setter. Kate Moose is executive producer. Recording engineer for this episode was Steve Griffith. Technical director, Corey Schreppel. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. Rhett has a new album out. It's called The Messenger. It just came out. Go listen to that. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation on that topic can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say and what not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home, full archive of shows there. You can send us mail via electric mail, also known as email, thwod, T-H-W-O-D, at AmericanPublicMedia.org. We're also on Twitter. Just search for us. You'll find us. And come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation there with your fellow thwodballs. New shows being formed. It's a good place to hang out. On our next episode, she's depressed and she stars on the top animated show about animals who act mostly like people and are also depressed. Aparna Nancherlez with us. I'm John Moe. Bye now. What if I was to tell you I'm Paiachi? This great big smile is just for show. Sad clown, tell me something I don't know. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know.